0: Welcome back to Season 3 of the HPS Cast. I'm your host, Colbert Ken. If you're new to the pod, HPS is a global investment firm. We manage approximately $70 billion in assets for a broad range of institutional investors. That capital is invested across private credit and public credit strategies. Each week, I sit down with key relationships to and partners of the firm to learn from their experience, ask how that experience shapes their current roles, and give insights into HPS and how we operate. So with that, let's bring in our guest. Our guest this week is the Dean of a leading business school here in the US. After getting a degree in electrical engineering at Michigan State, he started his career at Westinghouse before moving on into the consulting world at Booz Allen and later American Management Systems. He got his MBA from Howard University and continued on with a stint at the Fed as a senior information technology analyst. In the late 90s, he made his first move to academia when he took on a role as professor at Morgan State University in Baltimore. In 2011, he came home to the site of his MBA, Howard University, where he started as an associate professor before moving to several roles as associate dean before becoming dean of Howard School of Business late last year. As you heard in the podcast with Dr. Frederick, Howard's president, we at HPS are honored to have created a partnership with Howard, and our guest has been and will be instrumental in driving that venture going forward. So without any further ado, we are honored to introduce this week's HPS cast guest, Dean Anthony Wilbon, Dean of the Howard University School of Business. Dean Wilbon, welcome to the pod. Colbert, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, I'm glad you're here, and thank you for giving us your time. Well, let's go all the way back, Dean Wilbon. What drew you to Michigan State undergrad?
1: Well, of course, I grew up in Michigan. I grew up in Flint, Michigan, actually, which most people will know is, uh, in today's world as the, the home of the water crisis. But at the time that I was growing up there, Flint was a very well-known, middle-class, hard-working community that was uh, dominated by General Motors at the time. And so everybody in in the city kind of worked for or had some relationship to General Motors. Buick was headquartered there. There are a number of plants there from all over the GM spectrum. And so as I was going to school there, I also was taking classes at a uh, local vocational school. We had a relationship, our high school had a relationship there. I was taking classes in electronics. And the professor there happened to be in electrical engineering person who had graduated from Michigan State. So he kind of pushed me into that direction. And I ended up going there for my undergrad degree. So after college, you go into the corporate world. Tell me about the appeal of Westinghouse. How did that opportunity come about? Well, you know, I, it was kind of interesting because, again, I the whole time I was in college, I did most of my internships with General Motors and uh, over the summer. But I wanted to do something totally different. At the time, GM was kind of scaling down all of their operations in Michigan. This was the mid to late 80s. And so I just didn't see the opportunity there for me as a career. Unfortunately, I was correct because (laughs) the plants closed down immediately after that. And so I wanted to do something different. And so when Westinghouse came to Michigan State to recruit, they heavily recruited folks in engineering with the intent of bringing them onto the East Coast and into that industry, which was radar systems at the time. And tell me about that first role. What were you actually doing? Well, I was part of a management training program, so I kind of did a rotational program with them. And I started with in manufacturing; they were producing modules for F-16 radar systems and and so forth. And I did some work in systems engineering and a couple of I think I did a stint in marketing, but I ended up back in the, the manufacturing setting. So we were I was actually leading some engineers and technicians in the building of transmitters and receivers for radar systems for the F-16. So after
0: several years at Westinghouse, you you make the decision to move over to the consulting side. Why? What was the appeal of moving over at that point?
1: What I found was when I went into Westinghouse and I was working on those modules, it's a very detailed work. You're working in these labs on these specific modules and chips trying to make them work and kind of came to the conclusion, well, you know, I, I wanted to think a little bit bigger. Those modules could go into a radar system or washing machine. At, at that moment, it just, I just had to get the modules to work. And I was thinking about, I'd been exposed to other parts of the firm or the, of the company and thought that, you know, there's other things that I might want to at least see what, what is going on from a corporate perspective. And so consulting was the ideal way to do that because I got a broader perspective of what happens in these organizations. So now you decided to get an MBA. Did you take off time to do that or you do that as an executive MBA and, and keep working during it? It wasn't an executive. I was pretty intense. I was working at Booz Allen and yeah. doing my MBA part-time, but I was technically full-time because so I was yeah. taking three classes. You were a, doing, yeah, I about to say, that's semester. two jobs at once. <laughs> it was two jobs. So tell me about your experience then. What were the lessons learned from that time? And tell me about the MBA experience at Howard. Well, it's a pretty unique place, of course, Howard is. And so, you know, smaller classroom, smaller setting, and also very intent on building up the character of the students. Of course, Howard's mission is to provide opportunities for students of color. That's kind of our history all the way back to the founding post-slavery. And so you kind of get sprinkled in with theories around business, aspects of African-American history, how to conduct yourself in the business world, and just kind of a lot of social identity things that you wouldn't get in some other institutions. And so I think that even though it may seem small, I think that actually contributes a lot. When you add in the technical and theoretical aspects of business and for people like us, we're trying to transition into that space and in some cases where it's a little bit difficult or challenging for people of color. I don't think that sounds small at all. I'm
0: a huge believer in the sort of the human aspect of what we do and, you know, making sure that people it's not just numbers on a page. it's It's a lot more than that. Yeah, that's fantastic. Okay, so after several years of that, you make the decision to move from the corporate world to the education side. Your first role you take on as a professor
1: at the Grace School of Business at Morgan State. Why the career shift at that point? Why education? Well, I had been doing consulting and and things for a long time. Booz Allen, American Management Systems. I went to the Fed for a while. So it it was a lot of intense corporate work, a lot of travel, of course, as a consultant. And I found myself just kind of getting a little bit burnt out by that. I was on the road a lot and thought I wanted to do something where I could give back a little bit. You're know, you taking
0: classes difference. four nights a week. They're part taking, of that, too. I mean, you know, <laughs> well, yeah, that's yeah, right. Don't, that, don't burn anybody yeah. out. <laughs>
1: yeah. And, and I also did, you know, while I was at the Fed. I was taking my I was doing my doctoral program while I was at the Fed. So I did that. Too oh, that's right. While I was working yeah. um, as, so as I,
0: listener as listeners will now be screaming to point out your, your host is, is undereducated. It's always <laughs> nice talking to people, people that have as many degrees. All right. So it's time to give something back. Fair enough. Why Morgan State? What was the appeal of that institution? And
1: again, I, it was kind of built on my experience at Howard. I had opportunities to go to other institutions. I looked at an opportunity at Johns Hopkins, for instance, by the time I finished my doctoral degree and in other institutions in the DMV area. But I just thought it was time for me to really do something back and be a mentor for kids like me who would come up through families who were not as well off or may have needed a leg up. And I'd had enough experiences where I, I wasn't that enthused about just going to another major university and being another professor in the cog. I thought I could make a bigger difference or make a bigger splash in a place like Morgan State. Makes complete sense. What were you teaching, Dean Wilbon? I taught operations management, information systems. We kind of dabbled in project management a little bit, but most of it was operations management because when I was at the Fed, I was I had oversight of the operations of the reserve banks. And so I just kind of transitioned that into this position. <music>
0: So you worked, obviously, at a couple different companies before you became a professor. Do you think that's important? Should business school professors have, you know, sort of real tangible corporate experience to be a good educator?
1: I think it's tremendously important. I brought a lot to the classroom that students could relate to, that I could actually share with them as they made their transition into the corporate space. I thought it was incredibly important to be able to combine the theory with practice And I actually think that's important even to this day. I try to advise all of our faculty to get experiences outside of the theory in the classroom. And we're trying to figure out ways, for example, for them to do externships or work as consultants, because it's important to be able to take what you're teaching and demonstrate it to the students as to what they might see when they go out into the corporate world.
0: Yeah, makes it all more tangible. Totally great. How about you personally? How hard was the transition
1: from the for-profit world to the world of education? Well, it was significantly a big pay cut, so that was a big personal personal uh, sacrifice I had to make. But it wasn't nearly as difficult as I thought. I've always been one to do a lot of reading. Even as a young person, I was always into kind of research. My mom had bought an encyclopedia set when I was very young, and I found myself watching something on television, and I'd want to go look it up in encyclopedia, and I'd be there for two or three hours just diving into stuff.
0: Let me interrupt to say, thank God, this is an audio medium. They can't tell how old we are. Of course, I had the same experience. But if you talk to somebody who's in their twenties now, like what's an encyclopedia? Right, yeah, but right. of course, like that—that's how you learn things. Like that's you right. looked it up. Yeah, yeah. yeah that's that's exactly
1: Wiki, right. Wikipedia and books is what it was. <laughs> that's right. No, it's in physical form. Young <laughs> right. listeners, physical form. That's right. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so, um, and so, yeah, when you're when I, a reader. You let lo- you do your research. I love yeah. I love to read and research. And so, yeah. um, and so, in, in today's world, Google is not my friend because when I do the same thing with Google, I go look up something in Google, and I'm down kind of a a rabbit, rabbit hole. Yeah, sure.
0: Okay, so in 2011, you make the decision to move to Howard. And tell us about that opportunity and what
1: drew you back there. I actually I'd been trying to get back to Howard for at least three years prior to that. I had a relationship with the dean at the time. I wanted to get back to this campus because, again, I think, of course, Howard is the leader amongst the HBCUs. And so I just thought it might be something that I could make a a major contribution to. I've been at Morgan for 12 years. I had to give up tenure at Morgan and practically start over with a a tenure track here at at Howard, but I was willing to make the sacrifice. They've always done great things and I just thought it was time for me to come back home and make a contribution. That's great.
0: A couple of years in, so 2014, if I have my time right, you start taking on greater administrative type
1: roles in addition to your teaching responsibilities. Tell me about that sort of evolution in your career path. Well, that kind of came by accident. I was always content with being a professor and just teaching. Dr. Harvey, the prior dean, approached me about this opportunity, about being on the administrative side. And I hesitated at first, but took the dive. I thought okay, you know, maybe I could kind of merge the experiences I had in corporate leadership with some of my academic space experiences and thought I'd go ahead and take the jump. And they're good and bad with that jump. I give up a lot of my free time <laughs> by being a, an administrator versus a professor. But it all worked out. Do you miss the simplicity of your days just being a professor? Well, I miss the flexibility. <laughs> I had more time to play golf when I was a professor (laughs) than I do now. But the challenges are just as rewarding on this side of the fence.
0: Well, let's talk about Howard. You mentioned the term HBCU for our listeners around the globe who may be less familiar, historically Black colleges and universities in the U.S. Can you give us a little bit of a history lesson as to how institutions like Howard came about?
1: Well, and and specifically for Howard, again, after the uh, Civil War, the government set up the Freedmen's Bureau, which was developed with the intent of educating freed slaves as they were transitioning into society. And so the head of the Freedmen's Bureau was a general named Howard. And so he started this institution with the intent of giving freed slaves higher education opportunities. And he settled right here in D.C. So, for example, with Howard, we're the only one of only two other institutions that are receiving a federal appropriation because we were founded by the federal government. The other institution being Gallaudet and the rest of them are the service academies. And so we have a very unique position in that regard because we are funded or supported by the federal government. But we also make significant contributions to the country because of all the professionals that we contribute to various spaces and industries. And so all the HBCUs have a different story. They're all different in that regard, all with some of the same intent, educating African-Americans in the pre-Civil War, post-Civil War era with the intent of trying to kind of grow the middle class of African-Americans as they were making that transition.
0: So years on now, tell us about Howard's role today. Like, how do you think about its role in the American Educational Society?
1: We still try to hang on to that mission. I mean, we have a good number of our students, I think anywhere from 50 to 60 percent of our students are students who are what are considered Pell eligible, meaning that they are coming from economic backgrounds, which are not all that great and usually require some significant financial support. Not that they, most of them are highly qualified in academically, but they just don't have the economic and financial funds. So we have a commitment to make sure we provide these students with opportunities to grow academically and provide them with a step up as they make the transition to adulthood. And that's always been our mission. We are committed to doing that and still are, even though the competition or the admissions process is very competitive right now right, with getting into Howard. We still have a, a mission to make sure that we get students in here who may not have opportunities in other places, and we provide that opportunity for them.
0: No, That's fantastic. All right, so let's dig in then a little bit on the business school. So a year ago, you become the actual dean of the business school now. Tell me about your current role and tell me about how the business school is faring in these complicated, you know, in the midst of a global pandemic, these complicated times.
1: Well, I think we're faring quite well. We, uh, of course, had the same challenges as everyone else with the pandemic, we had to convert everything to virtual. We had no classes on campus for the past year. So we had to manage the students' expectations and also the crisis that comes with that, being at home and taking classes at home and all the mental stress and anguish that comes with that for for the student, staff, and faculty. But at the same time, we were able to have a quite a good run with making sure we positioned ourselves to provide corporate entities with what we do at Howard, and that is Give them insight on how to develop, uh, you know, for example, DNI initiatives, provide them with opportunities to create pipelines for our students to get into various parts of the workforce that they're trying to expand. And so a lot of companies have recognized that they've recognized it for years, but I think it, a lot of the, the issues that have happened over the last year with the pandemic and also the social injustice issues have kind of heightened the awareness of what Howard brings to the table. And so we've gotten a lot of attention in that regard. In that sense, the business school has benefited greatly from that. That's fantastic. What do you like most about being the dean of the business school? Well, it's very busy. I like to be busy, and so and that, that and, is clear, Dean Wilbon. <laughs> I mean, from your <laughs> yeah, yeah, uh, and so that that um, and and I think again, one of the things that I've always been kind of giving everybody advice on is find a way to make a difference in the world and make the biggest splash that you can. I think I made a, a pretty significant contribution as a professor because I touched a lot of different students through my classes, through the research I was doing and research grants. But being the dean gives me a broader opportunity to touch a lot of different people in a lot of different ways. So I have a whole, you know, I have 1,200 students in the business school, and my hope is that I'm influencing all of them in, in some way. So it's a bigger, kind of a bigger brush to work with versus 30 kids in a class at a time. I enjoy that. My goal is to, again, with being a dean is to give students as many opportunities as possible. And through the relationships that we're building, the gifts that we're receiving, and all the things that we're trying to do strategically, I think we're well on our way to do that.
0: All right. Now, longtime listeners will have heard from Dr. Frederick, president of Howard last year, about exciting developments in HPS's relationship with Howard. Let me start with the basics. From your perspective, what do you think the mission of the HPS-Howard partnership
1: is? Well, when, when we started this conversation with HPS and Scott Kapnick several months ago, one of the things that I kind of expressed to them is we wanted to build opportunities for our students to get into a space in finance that has not been necessarily open to African-Americans. That is, for example, private equity, investment banking, wealth management, those kinds of things. Most of the schools that companies like HPS have traditionally recruited from have been the the major institutions, the Harvards, the Yales, and so forth. And we have not been, been in that loop. So the conversation started with how can we build a pipeline, or build a program where our students can be pipelined into those spaces and somewhat get on the same competitive landscape as the other schools? the other students coming out of those schools. And so Mr. Kapnick was open to that discussion. And we talked about building an academy program. We were giving students kind of a heads up on private equity and understanding what that looks like, wealth management, capital and sales in the finance space. And so I think that that all kind of came together with building this program and this academy program and giving our students that advantage. And also working with HPS to kind of create internships using your network to build full-time employment opportunities to get our students into those lanes. It's so great to hear it from your perspective,
0: I think. It's so interesting to me, you know, as you just said, so much of it is just understanding how these opportunities work and how these jobs work. I went to college. I had a liberal arts education. I remember distinctly somebody mentioned commercial paper in an interview my senior year, and I literally thought it was office stationery. Like, I didn't understand (laughs) the world of finance at all. But people took a chance on me because I went to the right school and I got an opportunity. Yeah. You know, that's what what you're doing is giving people that sort of chance, which is you know you don't have to have done all these things since you, by the time you're 21 years old for you to be a great you know employee at a place like ours. It's a matter of getting the right on the right track. How do you think about that partnership and how it fits into the broader vision? I know that Dr. Frederick has for Howard. You know, how do you think about it fitting in the broader picture for the mission of the university?
1: Well, President Frederick has made it clear that workforce development is at the core of what he's trying to accomplish here. And so, for example, we built relationships with Google, trying to get our students placed into the Silicon Valley spaces where our students are spending half a semester to a year up at the Google location out west, what we call our Howard West Campus. They're working with Google engineers, our faculty are out there. And so we're building up a kind of a workforce development pipeline to Silicon Valley So that our students will have access to those jobs, engineering students, information systems, computer science students and so forth. We've done the same thing with Amazon Studios out west. We have some students from the communication school, from the fine arts and from business as well, going out and spending the entire year out in Amazon Studios, working on projects there, working with their staff and our faculty are there as well. So, again, building a pipeline of students to these various industries that have kind of been closed off to us to some degree. And this is kind of fits right into that same wheelhouse trying to figure out a way to build uh, kind of that same pipeline to the finance industry.
0: Well, that's great. What's next for Howard Business School more broadly? Give me your vision. What are you most excited about,
1: Dean Wilbaugh, in the next couple of years? Well, we're doing a lot of things. We're expanding into various other areas that we've dabbled in. But again, we've gotten some great gifts to help us build some significant programs. We, You may have heard we got a, a significant gift with Marriott. Got about $21 million from them to build out a center for hospitality leadership, so we're kind of doing the same thing, trying to help students pipeline into the leadership area of hospitality, which broadly includes commercial real estate development, ESG, supply chain management, so kind of giving them that broad perspective versus entering at the front desk as an entry-level job, going into the executive suite and seeing what you can do there. We're doing the same thing with the music industry. We got funds from Warner Music, and so we're getting students pipeline into various areas of the music industry, Beyond just the entertainment side, but really the backroom business contracts, business areas and law areas of music and various other capacities as well. So, again, my goal is to kind of broaden the opportunities. We've been very, very good with giving our students access to jobs for many years in the corporate space. We've had students going to Wall Street for years and and going to other areas. But I want to kind of get us to think differently. And that includes not only the ones I just mentioned, but opportunities in students that are interested in nonprofit. Nonprofit work. What can we do to get our students positioned there? A lot of students are interested in building their own business. How can we provide them with capital to start their own funds or fund them so that they can start their own businesses? Um, So there's a lot of things we're doing in that regard. Well, and I think what's exciting about that is the breadth, as you say,
0: you know, you can come in as a student and maybe I always think that the best thing about business school is if you're not exactly sure what you want to do, it gives you the opportunity to help figure it out over a couple of year period. And if that's as broad of a potential exit, you know, from there as possible, that's fantastic. Um, oh, yeah. that's, that's great. Well, Dean Wobon, that's exciting. Like I said, we are very excited and honored to be partnered with Howard and, and it's great to be able to catch up with you on what we're up to and where we're going. With that, let's move to the last segment of the podcast, something we like to call best ideas. And this is where we offer up something that's added value in our lives recently. We call it best ideas because as investors, we only hope to add good ideas to the portfolio, but our goal is always to size up and maximize exposure to our best ideas. Dean Wilbon, you're our guest. So I'm going to ask you to go first. What's your best idea this week?
1: Well, my best idea has been always about self-care. So regardless of the job you're in, I think that it's very important that you take some time to... Take care of yourself. And that includes, you know, for example, I do yoga. I try to fold in meditation. I like to travel to get away from the fast paced world that I live in. And so, I you know, reading and kind of digesting ways that you can grow yourself internally beyond what you do for a living, I think is critically important. And I think it's also helps with your aging, <laughs> gives you a little bit slower aging process. But again, I, I'm a big advocate of self-care and anything that you can do to kind of build yourself up internally is critically important, I think.
0: I think that's a great idea. And I think even more so after a year, like we've all had, it's it's really important. No question. Yeah, fair enough. Okay. So my best idea then, Dean Wilbon, as listeners know, I like to be inspired by the guests of the week. You preside over leading business school, I just heard you say multiple times you're an avid reader, and so I'm thrilled with this recommendation. I started thinking about business education and how I continue to try to learn about my own business on an ongoing basis. So my best idea this week is a book that recently was recommended to me by my good friend Paul Basta, who's the head of bankruptcy and restructuring practice at Paul Weiss. The book is an older book. It's called Greed and Glory on Wall Street. It was originally published in 1985. Fair warning, it's in and out of print, but you can find copies online or as an ebook. I actually purchased my copy for $3 off of eBay. It's about the turmoil at Lehman Brothers in the mid 80s, with a culminating with a sale to Shearson following a power struggle between co CEOs, Lou Gluckman and Pete Peterson, later founder of Blackstone. I think it's a fascinating read for a couple of reasons. First, the author Ken Aletta had unprecedented aspects, uh, access, excuse me, and really got into the human dynamics at the middle of what was essentially a financial dispute. And like I said earlier, I always feel like the human aspect of what we do is sometimes underexplored, and he really goes deep. Second, it's a great reminder that nothing really new ever happens in finance. You know, banks rise and fall; they need to be bailed out. These are old stories. And when you say you're reading a book about Lehman, many would rightly assume you're going into their failure in the global financial crisis, not events decades prior. Finally, it's just a great walk down memory lane with personalities who had many other successful acts. Bob Rubin makes an appearance, Stephen Schwartzman pops up. For anybody who likes a good business book, including your students, Dean Wilbon, my best idea this week then is Greed and Glory on Wall Street by Ken Aletta. Highly recommended. Dean Wilbon, with that, it's time to say goodbye for the week. I'm so grateful you agreed to take the time. HBS is honored to be partnering with you on our new initiative. So thank you for joining us on the podcast.
1: Colbert. It was my pleasure. Uh, Fantastic. Thank you for the invitation. I look forward to working with HPS. I think we're going to do some great things together. Couldn't agree more. Thanks again, Dean Wilbon. Thank you.
0: Thanks again to our guest, Dean Anthony Wilbon. Check out our show notes to learn more about Anthony and his role at Howard University. You'll also find a link to learn more about my best idea, the book, Greed and Glory on Wall Street by Ken Oletta. This podcast was brought to you by Atwill Media with HPS Investment Partners please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you like to listen.